1: Learn more at marines.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. On today's show, Marcus Traskovic will be joining us as we do a deep dive into England's fascinating 2-1 series win over Sri Lanka that took place nearly exactly 20 years ago. But before we get onto that, we'll talk about New Zealand finally reaching the top of the ICC test team rankings for the first time in their history. The start of the SCG test between Australia and India and England's start to their current tour of Sri Lanka. I'm Yaz Rana and I'm joined by the Wizarding Cricket Monthly duo of Joe Harmon and Phil Walker. Let's start as we tend to do with England. Their tour got off to a precarious start after Moeen Ali tested positive for COVID-19 after the squad arrived in Sri Lanka. He is currently undergoing a 10-day quarantine period, as per Sri Lankan government guidelines, which ends the day before the first test at Gaul, although he has not yet been formally ruled out of contention. Chris Wokes was deemed to be a close contact, so despite a negative test, he is currently self-isolating for a seven-day period. England's squad were all retested after Mohen tested positive, and there were no more positive tests, which is good news. Joe, whilst that is good news for the rest of the England squad, (laughs) that is absolutely gutting for Mohen Ali.
0: It is, and we, we've talked about him quite a bit on the show recently, and how how this uh, batch of fixtures is absolutely pivotal for his England career. And um, it seems, well, he he's not going to play the first test. It seems unlikely he'll play the second test. I'd have thought. Uh, and then, if you don't have those games, then then we've got India soon after. So I do feel very sorry for him. He's had a, he's see had a bad time with cricket. This is not what he needs. Um, I guess. I, it, there was that point when that first result came through uh, and then you say here Wokes as a close contact. It did feel for a moment like the whole thing was going to unravel and obviously it, it still could do. Um, But at least we can take some positivity that so far no other positive test returns and it does look like we're going to get the first test as scheduled uh, assuming Sri Lanka don't come back from South Africa uh, with anything. I guess that's another area of concern.
1: Joe, Joe, why do you think he's not really a chance for the second test
0: either. Well, I wouldn't say not a chance. I think it's probably unlikely. If he's been cooped up in a uh, hotel room, not been able to train at all, uh, I think it's a big ask for someone, especially when you think how little Red Bull cricket he's played anyway, just to throw him in for the second test. I guess it, it depends how England go, really. Uh, I, I, unless it's an absolute disaster of a first test or they get beaten very heavily, I can't re- really see them bringing him for a, a second one. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong. There's, there's no reason why he can't, but it, to, to me, it seems unlikely. You, you think they'd still they'd still consider him for that second test?
1: Yeah, in, in as much as he will be going, assuming that he recovers okay and that he's back in training by the middle of next week, it's not going to be in time for that first test. But. Everyone's going in reasonably cold into that first test anyway, so I'm not sure his position going in cold into the second will be that much different. Obviously, the players in the first test will have had a game under their belts, but it it might not be a disaster for Moeen that, that, he, that he even misses this first game. And if if Joe Root has in his head the idea of playing Moeen Ali, then I don't think this... This is curtains for him necessarily for the winter at all. There's there's six games to come. He may he may well he will almost certainly have to miss the first one. But I still think if Joe wants him in his team, then I think he can be he can be slipped in there for that second test match without it being too too disruptive. But we shall see. I think I think it comes down to really how they see the the makeup of that team in the first place, really, and how much the the pitches take spin. Obviously, last time they were raging turners, this time it might not be quite the same. We'll
2: have to wait and see. Yeah, on, on that, Sri Lanka, I mean, we've been talking quite a lot about how England's spin attack is different and potentially weaker than it was in 2018, but Sri Lanka's as well. Um, Rangana Harath obviously retired in that series. Um, Dilran Pereira is now 38 and averages 100 with the ball since that series. Pushback Amara hasn't played since that series. Akila Dananjaya, who was really good that series, hasn't played an international game since his ban for throwing. And um, they've had a couple of young spinners who come in and done all right, but um, actually, it's their seamers who've, who've looked better in recent times. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the South Africa Shranker test, but they had a debutante called um, Asita Fernando who looked pretty good. But going on to the actual England 11, um, you guys both kind of reference it, but how do you think this affects the England 11, Joe? Without Stokes, England were likely to lean on Moeen's all round game to balance the side. That's now much harder without him in it.
0: Yeah, it's very hard to know if Moen was down to in this first test or not, because he hasn't really been part of the test setup. up. Um, so maybe this hasn't changed their plans. It's very possible that they were going to go in with, with Bess, who was the incumbent spinner, and Leach, who you would probably say is their best spinner, I, I think, as a, just as a, as a pure spin bowler. So maybe this hasn't upset their plans um, too much. I don't think they were going to play all three spinners like they did last time. Um, probably because... Those spinners aren't as strong as they were when they last visited Sri Lanka. Uh, And as you said, uh, suggested before, these these pitches might not turn quite as much as they had done previously, given that Sri Lanka's spin Arsenal isn't quite as strong as it it has been. So I I don't think it's... I think it's more of an issue for Moen than it is for England in that sense. I don't necessarily see this as upsetting their plans too much.
2: Do you reckon? I I thought, um, just because it's quite hard to fit five bowlers in basically without Stokes or it's harder to, so I thought Moeen would possibly bat seven, but I guess, I guess that's a role that Sam Curran could fill. Um, Chris Hill could play, so Wokes could bat seven. I, I think,
1: I think Curran now comes into the side and almost certainly bats at, bats at seven uh, the way, the way that I, I would look at it. Uh, but I tend to agree with you, Yaz. I think Moeen would have, would have been a favorite to play this first test match. If, if he had had enough red ball practice, Um, I I don't subscribe to this idea that Moeen as a spin bowler is slipping ever further down the hill because there's very few precedents uh, which suggest that that happens to cricketers. What Moeen is, though, over the last two years, is a white ball cricketer who from time to time is thrown a red ball. And because he he is a slightly mercurial kind of talent and because he's not a kind of conventional straight up and down English off-break bowler, uh, I think he probably needs a bit more rhythm and he needs a bit more bit more regularity with the red Bull in order to to bowl the way that I still believe he 's capable of, of bowling it, it 's almost unheard of for a spin bowler in their early 30s having taken one hundred plus international wickets in both forms to just fall off a cliff and lose the knack so as I've said before in the show, I still think there is a cricketer there. I still think there is an England Test match cricketer there. And I, and I think they would have been mightily keen to get him in to uh, this first Test match. As you say, in part because of the Stokes conundrum. Uh, he won't be playing now for that first Test match. But, but we, should, we should have to wait and see what plays out afterwards. For what it's worth, if everybody is given a fair run, of those three spinners, those three Red ball spinners, if everyone is given a fair run, uh, then I would still prefer to have Mo and Ali in my team than, than any of the other
2: two. No, it's really interesting. You said time to time, um, but Mo- moe hasn't actually played a first-class game since September 2019. This
1: the problem right there.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and what is also interesting is that in the year before his last first-class game, no one took more test wickets in the world. So he's gone from being um, an ag- absolute mainstay of the England side to somebody who's, who's barely touched a red ball now in, in 18 months. So it'll be interesting to see how, how England go. Yeah, just, just on Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka lost the second test of that series against Africa by 10 wickets. They were bowled out for 157 and 211 in their two innings. But there were positive signs with the ball. Um, it is worth remembering that this is a depleted Sri Lanka side with, with quite a few players out, out injured. We don't know how many of them will be back for the first England test, but possibly not that many. There was a recall for Lahiru Tirumane for that test, who I thought we'd seen the last of in international cricket. Um, just a reminder, Thiromane averages under 23 with a bat from 36 tests. So it's an interesting test career there. Um, I, we're we're going to start with my moment of the week this time. And it was part of New Zealand going top of the world test rankings. I ended up watching quite a lot of this test match. And my, my favourite moment, I get it, it wasn't really a moment per se, but it was Henry Nichols' managing score uh, 100, despite barely being able to run for, for, for the majority of his innings and forming one half of New Zealand's third highest partnership of all time. No prizes for guessing who his partner was. Kay Lewisman scored his second double hundred in three home tests. And it caps a very, very strange summer for Henry Nichols. He was, at, he was going into it with, with some pressure on his place. He was, he was a bit out of Nick. And he's got two quite big hundreds this summer, but it hasn't been plain sailing either. He's been dropped seven times. Um, he was out of a no ball in this innings on single figures, off Shaheen, uh, and he's, he's made the most of those opportunities and ended up with a second hundred of the summer. There's a lot to talk about this match and we'll talk a little bit about New Zealand getting to the top of the rankings in a bit, but I was so impressed by Carl Jameson. I know that he's done well so far in his Test career, um, but I think it's quite easy to overlook someone in that New Zealand team doing well just because of how well that team just does at home, but he's absolutely brilliant. He took 11 wickets in the match. The bowler that he reminds me most of is Toby Roland-Jones, I think he's quicker than Toby Roland Jones. Uh, he, he pro- I think he moves it probably a little bit more than Roland Jones. Um, but it has his style, very tall, hitting the pitch hard. What I liked about him was 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 how attacking his length was. He really, really does search wickets. And I don't know that much about him, but the way the commentators talk about him is made it sound like he's quite a headstrong character. He's he's really determined, not just to be. Test match bowler But he's really determined To be the best All rounder in the world And his, his test career As a batsman Has started pretty well as well So it be interesting To see how he develops And especially if New Zealand end up coming to England This summer for Either a two test series Against England Or the World Test Championship final I think he's one To look out for
1: i, I tell you what I'd rather face Toby Rowland-Jones Than Kyle Jameson I'll tell you that for nothing um, it, He might be the The, the missing piece uh, in, in this team And um, New Zealand, as we know, have be, have always been competitive unless they travel to Australia, and they've always done it with a handful of world-class players and some decent journeyman backups. Uh, but now, across the board, that they don't seem to have any obvious weak weak links really. And yeah, they've developed. They've got a good opening batsman in, in Latham. Henry Nichols, I find unwatchable, but he's a very useful kind of Collingwood-esque Southpaw in the middle, in the middle order. Obviously, they have a, a worldie at first drop. Uh, Bolton South, speak for themselves, uh, and they have some backup seamers. But Jameson is the, the bit of stardust, it looks like, in this team. And they have now, of course, famously gone to number one in the world. But um, if they're looking to sustain it, and I think they have a decent chance of doing so because there, there is no outstanding team to challenge them at the moment. Every team has their holes and their fallibilities. Then someone like Jameson could be the kind of the, the real world-class outlier that a team needs to, to legitimately make that claim to be the best team around. Um, his numbers are joke numbers, aren't they? I mean, they, they'd embarrass Sobers. You know, Sobers was like a sort of straight up and down county cricketer compared to Carl Jameson. <laughs> Looking at these numbers at the moment, it, it is a phenomenal start to, to his career. And, and I, what is he, six
2: foot eight? I think. Yeah, six, six eight? foot eight. He's absolutely massive as well. Uh, he he currently averages, I, I believe, over 50 with a bat and under 15 with a ball um, yeah. from six tests. And um, there's a wisdom.com article basically comparing his starts of the career to everyone in the history of the game. And it, and it basically came to the conclusion it was the best start to a test career um, in 121 years, which is uh, not quite. <laughs>
0: It's interesting. You, you, you said on the show a couple of weeks ago, Yaz, an interesting thing about this New Zealand side is just how each player comes in, uh, just slots in so naturally and, and, and kind of plays above the standard that they have in, in first-class cricket. I mean, Jameson's a prime example of that. In, in, in first-class cricket, he only averages about 20 with the bat. But in test cricket, he's played well almost every time he's batted. Daryl Mitchell, the New Zealand Daryl Mitchell, is, is another one as well. He's, he scored 100 against Pakistan in the last test has a kind of middling first-class record. And it is, it's just, a, it's, it's a kind of a cliche, but it just shows coming into a winning side and a side that ha- you know exactly what your role is. You know, he knows that he's come in to do the De Home role, basically. You know what that role requires. Uh, and you've got a captain uh, who, well, he's batting better than anyone in the world, almost as well as anyone in the world has ever batted at this, at this stage. Uh, and I thought it was very Kane Williamson when he was asked how New Zealand have managed to get to number one. The first thing he did was say that it was mainly Brendan McCullum who deserved the the credit, which even by Williamson's standards was probably overly modest, I think, because this is a very different team. That was an exciting, aggressive team who had some fantastic wins, but they also had some pretty big losses. Uh, And Williamson, there's there's still excitement. There's still thrilling cricketers in that New Zealand side, but there's just that consistency, which they were probably never going to quite manage under McCullum, just because of the different characters that they are and the different ways they play their cricket. It was the perfect transition, really, and it could not have worked out any better for them.
2: Mm. I think on, on Mitchell and Jameson's batting, I think it just helps if, you, if you're always coming in at 400 for five. If you're just trying to make your way as a test batsman, as they seem to be at home. Well, um, was, did you
0: remember Graham, Graham Swan was sort of averaging 50 in test cricket for a while? Because every time he came in, they were 400 for six. But it was a little bit tough when you're facing Mitchell Johnson in. In Australia
2: by the way their, their commentary team and their broadcast team is are absolutely amazing They're, they are so good um, as good as the Sky team in the UK if not better I'd say um, but Brendan McCullum was making the point that one of the things about this side that's different to his New Zealand side is how Kane Williamson has just lifted all those around him um, by kind of as, as Williamson's career has progressed he's just lifting all the other batsmen with him really so like Nichols, Tom Latham, BJ Watling, etc all these guys average now 40 and it must you know just having one of the best batsmen in the world, one of the best batsmen in the last 30, 40 years, just must help. Unfortunately, New Zealand only have four tests scheduled over the next 12 months. So that actually might be a barrier to this side feeling like the most dominant side in the world, which is, which is a real shame. But as I said, they might have that two test series in England this summer.
1: Um, yeah, that point is, is a shameful one. Um, and if the ICC are truly serious about maintaining test cricket into the next decade then this this has to be right at the top of their inbox you have to get the big teams who want to be playing test cricket playing more of it it's it's absurd to be having a team that is currently number one in the world playing 20 days of test cricket over the next 12 months when England are playing 18 times five you do the maths yeah I mean this is the obvious imbalance of of, of the world game and uh, and and it's, it's nothing short of, of shameful, really. And I, I want to just have a word on Pakistan. I, I found this game quite hard to watch. And I know that, yeah, as you've sort of ordered your body clock to, to watch cricket through the night for the last month and so on. For me, I found it quite tricky. Uh, I, I saw a lot of the first part of New Zealand's innings in response to Pakistan's 297 on day one, which was, I saw a fair amount of that as well, actually. And that was quite a rousing first day because they were in the dirt and and Rizwan who's an impressive cricketer turned it around with a good knock anyway they got up to a kind of half decent ish competitive ish kind of target and oh well the morning after didn't they and they 60 for two um, New Zealand 70 for three and then as you say Nichols nicks off didn't even look at the races at all nicks off Shaheen no ball Williamson hanging in there as well broadly shotless they could they could have been 870 for four with Williamson bedding down. Uh, and then and then Pakistan, they bowled Shahan Massoud for the last 20 minutes before tea on that second day. And then Williamson, because he's a genius, thought, all right, well, I'll, I'll have some of this now, changed the momentum of the innings. And then they came out in the, in the evening session on day two, and Williamson strummed 90-odd in 100-odd balls. Completely changed the complexion of the game. But even in that final session, Williamson was dropped twice, I think, Nichols was dropped once or twice as well. Uh, it could have been a very, very different story. I mean, you're right. They got 650 for six. So it's hard to make a, a real case that it could have been different. But you know, this is the, the, the strange momentum shift of a game of cricket. Now, Pakistan could have been well in this game. As it was, they lost they lost by an innings and plenty. But they had the game there. They had a real chance to turn that game around. Um, a word on Shah Massoud, uh, who, who is, you know... We're big big fans of him on the show, as we know. One of the all-time worst games of cricket. It's it's Gavin Hamilton levels of terrible, terribleness. Bagged a pair. um, Second innings, 25 ball, I think it was. 20-something, 25 balls. Uh, The slowest and most painful of deaths. But he also, he bowled two overs for 18 or 19 and dropped about half a dozen catches. I mean, you know... He's, he's, he's a strong boy and he'll come back and he's, he's a pedigree cricketer, but my word, that's that's quite a week at the office, isn't it, really? You're Pakistan's
2: next captain? <laughs> yeah, maybe,
1: maybe not.
2: Both test matches followed quite a similar pattern in that Abbas and Shaheen started really well. New Zealand uh, really had to battle through periods at the start. But as the innings progressed, um, New Zealand batsmen looked reasonably comfortable at kind of just surviving against Abbas. They weren't really scoring many but they could just survive. And then when the 1st the, the chain, 2nd chain bowlers co- co- came in, they really pounced. And Nassim Shah had a really poor series, really poor yeah. series. And I know he's only 17, um, but he couldn't... That's the offer... point,
1: isn't it? it? It's because he's 17. Yeah. He should really be playing test cricket. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he facilitated Warner's triple 100 last, last winter, didn't he, as well? 16-year-old play, you know, bowling at the Gabba or wherever it was. Arguably, he should be, you know, learning the game out there in domestic cricket but it's 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 the the joy the unhinged joy of pakistan cricket that they see a quick uh and then they think right here we go here's another wakar here's another wazim well they happen once in a generation if you're lucky uh so we can't really you know come down on the kid but arguably he shouldn't really be playing at this stage Mm. he's clearly a talented boy but you know there's one thing sort of Pulling up poles in the in the domestic stuff out in Pakistan, and there's another bowler to Kane Williamson, you know, on day two, day three. Not just not just the the skill side of it, but physically as well. I mean, he's a 17 year old boy, so yeah. I don't know. They might want to look at that going forward and, and, and hold him back for a, for a year or two until he grows into his body as much as anything else.
0: One one place he certainly shouldn't have been was facing the press after that oh, game. Yeah.
1: All yeah. well, right, it was
0: him and Zafar Gohar who'd who, who, turned figures of like none for three hundred or something between them.
2: Yeah, so between them, it was exactly that. It was none for three hundred or fifty-eight overs. Nassim Shah's seventeen, Zafar Gohar's twenty-five, and on debut. And they were they were put up to the press the day New Zealand got six hundred and fifty.
1: Yeah, it's it's the Pakistan version of Paul uh, Firebrace, isn't it? Just just roll out roll out the kids
0: paul barbara can take it though can't he that that's 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 the difference i mean wh- whoever whether that's down to rizwan and standing captain or or the media team at pcb that is someone's really stuffed up there look. that should not be happening
2: yeah not a good look absolutely absolutely um anyway phil what is your moment of the week by the way
1: um it, my moment of the week is spending. Uh, a glorious escapist morning reading or rereading Steve Harmison's autobiography or a large chunk of it um I know it's niche stay with us listeners um Joe actually asked me for uh, to, to grab a couple of quotes um from it and I ended up kind of getting lost in the book and I, I've read it before and I interviewed Harmison about the writing of the book or the, the composing of the book a few years ago uh and I remember reading at the time and being quite struck by it there's a kind of unpretentious honesty to it um written with a smile as well he documents his his troubles you know his anxiety issues his homesickness issues his depression issues he he doesn't skirt around any of those those uh, mental health challenges and struggles that he's gone through throughout his life uh, but it's written it's written with with real warmth and i ended up getting really lost in it and specifically lost in that two-year period, that 2004-05 period, where Harmison, out of nowhere, really, a slightly reluctant cricketer, uh, a football fan first and foremost, who would have given anything up to to be Newcastle's number nine, but accidentally becomes, all too briefly, the number one bowler in the world. And Joe and I were talking about this a couple couple of weeks ago when we were putting our list together for the upcoming magazine of the most disruptive uh, figures in English cricket of the 21st century. And we thought long and hard about putting Harmison in because in some respects, we'd never really seen a, a bowler like that, a kind of a, a clone of Courtley Walsh and a bit of Gillespie in there with the elasticity in his action. And, and he, was, he was a phenomenon, really, for English cricket for a couple of years. And it was just nice to go back and revisit those years. And there was some, some beautiful stories, some classic stories that only ever come out in autobiographies that kept in dressing rooms until, until the book rolls out. There's a couple of real beauties. And going back to the 2005 series, the final morning of Edgbaston, to, um, fourth day, famous situation. Obviously, Australia needed eight yachting, England needed two wickets. And the, the morning of that day, the Sunday Mirror had run a kiss and tell story about Kevin Peterson. Do you remember this, Joe? I don't, actually. I don't remember that one. Right. Well, I do. And I remember reading it at the time, going to the ground with my two mates. And the Sunday Mirror had run a story about uh, a girl that Peterson had picked up and the story ran that he liked to, he liked to, to, to have, his, have his way with her, with the lights off, with her, her shouting, Kevin Peterson, Kevin Peterson, at ever louder octaves going up the scale. So 20, half an hour or no, an hour or so before the start of that final day when everybody's lost all sense of composure and we're all in a mess, Peterson walks into the dressing room and they've turned all the lights off in the dressing room <laughs> And he walks in and the whole team start going, Kevin Peterson,
3: Kevin Peterson,
0: Kevin Peterson
1: (laughs) And you can just imagine that, can't you? As the punters are filing in and you've got the serious minded, stern-minded, you know, Channel Four Comms team and the TMS team and the Sky team going this is the most important day for English cricket. This is a hinge point in English cricket history. And they're just taking the, the piss out of Peterson for having got his leg over the week before. And and it's full of those kind of little sort of non-secondary stories interspersed with great insights on the game uh, and some very kind of searingly honest accounts of his own struggles internally and, and psychologically. It's a beautiful book. It really is. And, and I, had, I had a great couple of hours lost in that on, the, on Tuesday morning. So that's, that's, my, that's my story
0: of the week or moment of the week. Well, there's a lot to be said to, for losing yourself in a bit of nostalgia at the well, moment. Yeah, especially now. Or, or Maybe exclusively losing yourself in nostalgia <laughs> might, might be the way to go for the next couple of months.
2: Yeah, yeah, nice. Your answer there, Phil, uh, veered in a very different direction to what I was expecting. Um,
1: sorry, what were you expecting?
2: Sorry, I wasn't really sure to be honest, but I, I was unaware of that story. On <laughs> Steve Harmson, on Steve Harmson, listeners, if you're interested in Stephen Harmson and, and, and you want a, 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 a sensible dose of nostalgia. Um, as, we, as we are in uh, lockdown three. Uh, I'd recommend our podcast episode with Steve Harmson from lockdown one. Phil and I spoke to Harmson for about an hour, talked about his career, talked about the time he trained with Newcastle United uh, when he was injured and it was just before the period where he ended up uh, as an number one ranked goal in the world. So I'd highly recommend that if you have a scroll on, on your podcast app. To Australia, the SCG test got underway last night, so we won't talk about it in too much depth. But there are a couple of debutantes, um, nabdeep Saini, for India, the Quick, and Will Bukowski, who we've talked about quite a lot before for Australia. Phil, what did you, what do you think of Bukowski, who scored a half-century on debut? Uh,
1: very, very watchable. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, actually. I can see why they're excited. He, he slips right in there, doesn't he? Um, you know, he's got a kookaburra bat. He's got a bit of hair running down the back of his neck. Uh, he's, a, he's a likeable kind of larrikin-like character. He's, he probably... Likes wearing check shirts and walking around Melbourne coffee shops and all of that. You can totally see why he appeals to the modern hipster Australian cricket fan. Um, and he bats, he bats in the classical Australian vein. You know, he moves back and across. He gets in behind it. He likes a pull shot. He likes a hook shot. Infamously, he likes a hook shot. And no doubt we'll come to that in a moment. But when he plays that, and I watched a fair amount of his innings last night. When he plays down the ground, he looks ordered and organised. Um, he's a very, very watchable batsman, and um, I rather fear that he's going to be very, very watchable for quite a long time. Um, but and it feels a bit, a bit, I don't know, a bit, a bit kind of joyless to put that asterisk next to his name. But until he starts to score regular Test match runs and doesn't get concussed and doesn't get knocked out, nine concussions, Yaz, is that right? Yeah. By the age of 22 uh independent urologists having to assess him before being given the green light to go and play having to answer these questions in the build-up to the game until he starts scoring runs uh with a fair wind without any of these other issues percolating around and cross your fingers he doesn't get hit again until that happens we are going to have to put an asterisk next to his name and it's a shame because and ben wrote a very good piece about this overnight Um, By the end of his innings and by the the evening session, rain truncated first day, people were talking about a good, interesting, young Australian batsman, and they weren't talking about Will Pukowski, nine concussions and the rest of it. I hope that in in times to come, that's what we're talking about and not not these other troubling and very serious elements to his interesting and unusual story.
2: Mm. He did look very good. Um, Quite a few people on Twitter comparing him to... Jonathan Trott in style, which which I definitely saw a bit of. Um, the, I guess the other interesting thing from day one was was David Warner's inclusion when he was nowhere near fully fit. And I know that Australia acknowledged this in the run up to the test, but he went for a, for a, a two, I think, um, in his first over that he faced, and he clearly wasn't able to run properly. Um, and then he 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 was out shortly afterwards, uh, going for a wild drive on the up off a good length ball off off Siraj and. I guess we don't know if his groin influenced that shot and maybe he wanted to get, get, get on with things more than he, than he usually would. I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a player play a test match that knowingly unfit and physically unready for that test, basically. Um, yeah, I, I, guess-
1: I agree. I agree, as and it was odd. Uh, and, and it only really came out 48 hours before the start of the game anyway that, that he was going to go in there crocked. Um, possibly the adrenaline was such that he went a bit too hard on that run and might have tweaked it a wee bit, it's hard to know Uh, but he didn't look comfortable and that shot he played was appalling Um, you know there's all very well thrown, your hands at one outside off early on and I know that's the way he plays and all of that but uh, his his foot was nowhere near the pitch of it it was on the up, his hands were away from his body, it was a terrible shot for an opening batsman to play Um, unfortunately for India they they rather let let it let it slide after that. A couple of drop catches. Pekowski survived one or two close chances as well, as well. And and I'm afraid Smith is due, isn't he? You know, he's 30-odd not out overnight. And Lavachain, he's threatened all summer as well. 240 odds in the first innings of the first two games, and he's 60-odd not out now. Um, it's a flat one at Sydney. It was a big toss to win, I think, for Australia. Uh, but we shall see. But... At the moment, they are well in the box seat. It's been a good day for them. And they needed it after the shambles of Melbourne, really.
2: One more thing on Pekoski that I forgot to add. Adam Collins wrote an article about him for ESPN Quick Info four years ago when he was 18. I think just as he was making his first-class debut in it, he referenced that Pekoski um, had aspirations to become a sports journalist. And when he was 18, he wrote some articles um, for, for, for Raw in Australia on Manchester United. Yesterday, Matt Roller from ESPN Quick Info did some Googling. He found those articles and shared them. I'd highly recommend going to find them. They're, they're, they're actually pretty good. And also, especially for an 18-year-old. And also, he he really goes in hard on Louis Van Hal. He, he he cites one game where I think I think like United are, are chasing a game and he brought on two two fullbacks and a defensive midfielder. And he ended the sentence with shambolic exclamation mark. A, a multi-talented individual. Joe, what's your moment of the week?
0: Uh, my moment of the week uh, came through on my email just a couple of hours ago actually, the news that uh, England women will be touring Pakistan next October, the first time England had ever sent a women's side to Pakistan they're playing two T20 internationals uh, as double headers with the two that the England men's team are playing in Karachi, back to back and then they're sticking around for three ODIs after that um, so it's historic in the sense that England haven't been there before It's also massive in in the sense that women's cricket has been kind of cold, basically, uh, during the pandemic. It's the first thing to go in pretty much every country. I know the ECB uh, were frustrated that South Africa cancelled their tour of England last summer. India basically decided that women's cricket isn't happening for the foreseeable, cancelled their tour to Australia. There are obviously reasons for this, kind of, but then a lot of those reasons don't really stack up when men's cricket continues Uh, at pace I mean there's so much of it going on at the moment so there's obviously huge inconsistencies there so any women's cricket is good news this is particularly good news we want England to be playing we want Pakistan women to be playing also an England women's team going to Pakistan um, where it's been a bit of a struggle for women's cricket to be recognised and and appreciated uh, or accepted I guess Uh, that's enormous as well Um, and it's another tick in the box for Wazim Khan who's not necessarily hugely popular in Pakistan from what I can gather. There's uh, a lot of the um, kind of the cricket base there. Don't really appreciate an Englishman coming in and and, and doing that job, but he's certainly making some landmark uh, decisions and and creating moments of history there for Pakistan. So that, that, that will be great. That's yeah. Two two T20s, three ODIs in October next year, um, which will warm up nicely for Challenges ahead, for women's cricket, because 2022 is looking very busy, all being well. It's just this next year is, is not looking particularly good for women's cricket as a whole.
1: Yeah, just on that, um, on the story of Pakistan women getting to a point where uh, they could mobilise and play in, in world tournaments, uh, it really is one of the great stories. It's one of the great stories of, of this century, really, and roll, rolling into the, the last few, few years of the previous century. There were protests in the street. Effigies were burnt by, by, you know, by, by the male folk of, of pockets of Pakistani life. And for the, uh, for, for the women to, to withstand that kind of public pressure uh, and assert their rights to play a game of cricket and to get to a point where they now compete and compete pretty well, often in, in ICC world, world competitions, is, is one of the great, most stirring stories, really, of, of, of this cricketing century. Um, it's worth checking out, I would say.
2: And hopefully, as Joe, you mentioned, being played in front of Full Houses as well would be, would be really special. So just before we get on to our interview with Tresk Gothic, we had um, an email sent in from one of our listeners, Johnny Monroe. First off, he said, thanks for the excellent podcast, best cricket podcast around. Keep up the good work. Then he said, you were pretty down on the news about Amazon and Disney acquiring the rights to some cricket in the near future on last week's show. I understand that it will make it more expensive to watch all the cricket. But, However, as someone who can't afford the hefty Sky subscription, this does allow me to watch some live English cricket for an affordable price. Currently, I can't watch any because I can't afford Sky. Amazon Prime, at just £7.99 for a month, will surely open the market up to tens of thousands of fans, potentially hundreds of thousands of fans. Is this not a good thing? Phil.
1: Back bang on by Johnny. Um, I mean, he had me with the first line. I'd agree with anything he wants to say after that. But no, he was absolutely right. And, and it was a point that we failed to make uh, or even register really last week he's he is absolutely right um i guess the concern comes down the line when it becomes ever more uh split and spread lightly across all the platforms um and you know one has to keep their eye on, on the subscription prices going forward as well because the more people that that flood through the more people that are prepared to pay for it the more power that these these outlets have and then they can then they can decide exactly what kind of kind of prices they, they set for the thing. Uh, but it's a good point and one that we should have made. Um, so cheers, cheers to Johnny for that. Um, and keep fighting the good fight, mate. And keep telling all your mates that we are the best ones
2: around. Absolutely, absolutely. If you, if you do want to send in any questions to show, you can at us on Twitter uh, or send an email to editorial at wisdom.com. So we're going to spend the next section of the show talking about England's series win in Sri Lanka in 2001. Joe wrote a brilliant piece on it in the most recent Wisden Cricket Monthly, and it's a tour that we don't hear a lot about. After going 1-0 down, England came back to win the Still-Tempered Series 2-1 against the Sri Lanka side with Atupatu, Jaya Saria, Sangakara, Jaya Warner, Aravinda de Silva, Young Dilshan, Vars, and of course, Murali. We're delighted to be joined by former England opening batsman in 2005, Ashes hero, Marcus Trescothick. Marcus, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Marcus, you, you scored a hundred and a half century in the first test of that series, a game that England actually lost by an innings. In that game, Atupatu batted for uh, 11 and a half hours for a double hundred, yeah. um, yeah. And despite your runs, England were bowled out for 253 and 189, England crumbling against Murli and Jarz in that second innings in particular. Um, first of all, how hard was it out there in the field, in the heat, as Atupatu just batted and batted and batted?
3: Yeah, gruelling, very much so. It's like the... Um... You know it's very hot there anyway, and 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 down in Gaul, you know there was a little bit of breeze, but so humid, Um, and the intensity of that of that heat really sort of takes its toll on you almost. Um, Lose the toss, and and then we were in the field, and you know we knew it was going to be a good pitch, and it was going to get worse as uh, as as the game went along, Uh, and it was going to spin a lot more. But you know to stand in the field, I think obviously we had six hours day one, and then probably what three or three and a half hours, four hours on day two. Um, was pretty demanding um, you know I just remember you just walk off at, at, at lunch breaks or tea breaks and just your clothes are absolutely soaking wet um, you know you're changing every time that you, you get the opportunity but the the heat and humidity is the biggest challenge I think you have to cope with in, in parts of the world like that it's just so intense um, and so demanding when you when you're trying to perform and, and do what you do.
2: Yeah, as I mentioned, you didn't go too badly yourself in that test match, 100 and a half century. Um, In Joe's piece, he alludes to work that you reference in your autobiography with Duncan Fletcher about preparing to play thin. Um, What what was it that Duncan told you, basically, about how to to play out there?
3: Yeah, so I've been working on it um, previously while we were in um, Pakistan before Christmas. Um, And it was really, I was just trying to devise a way of um, being able to bat against spin. Uh, I could always sweep and that was always my go-to um, but I needed something else to, you know, once you're going up into the international level you can't just rely on one shot. Um, I needed to be able to expand it uh, and by, by it's the forward press is what um, it was devised as and you, you watch so many of the, you know, the Indian players, Pakistan players, Sri Lankan players all have a very similar style of movement of having your front foot moving almost premeditating or as the ball is bowled to try and, you know, sort of move towards the, the, the pitch of the ball as it's coming down. So um, for me, it was more about getting my movements out of the way, um, getting all the the timing of everything. So I was in a still position. I then didn't have to move very far from that position to either defend or drive. Um, and expand my game from that point. Um, what it also gave me, because my movements were pretty much done, it gave me more time to be able to push back and hit off the back foot. Um, so it was just a, it's a strategy, a technical strategy, based around the technical, um, you know, aspect of your game to try and improve what you're trying to do. Thorpe was obviously
0: exceptional in in this series. Uh, you got your maiden hundred, third third top run score in the series as well. So it's interesting stats as the two lefties, you and Thorpe averaged... A combined fifty-two and contributed forty-four percent of England's runs in the series. The yeah. right-handers averaged a combined fifteen point four. Uh, are you able to explain why the right-handers found life so much more difficult
3: than? I, your... I think it was Morlithran. Obviously, yeah. was the key point at that time at that stage of Morlithran's career. He didn't have a doosra, so he had a, a big spinning off-spinner, um, and then he used to bowl one out the front or like over the top of your hand, almost like his straight ball. Um, with the ball not spinning back into the left-handers and the ball spinning so much away, you could almost, you could just play for the off-spinning delivery. And, um, you know, if it spun so much, you would miss it. So you, you end up just lining up and hoping, okay, if I pick this and it's okay, but if not and it spins the other way, then I'm going to miss it because it's too, it spun too much. So for right-handers, that was far greater. So they couldn't line up one type of delivery. They were having to line up you know, more than one area. So, uh, obviously, that puts the pressure back on them. Um, they they had was in play. They had uh, Bold in play. And they also had Nick to the keeper, and, and Slip. So, um, I think that's where the difference was. And that's why it became a lot harder. I found Murray so much harder when he invented the Dutera. Uh A, because I couldn't pick it. Uh, and B, it was just then suddenly all aspects of, you know, of the game were involved. If all dismissals were involved. So, so different for me
1: yeah I just wanted to ask briefly Marcus the the fabled Fletcher forward press which changed the way the English players played against the, the the turning ball is that still now as relevant to to today's players and as a coach now do you still look to kind of coach the same kind of principles today
3: yeah I think within reason yeah I think you're very close to it I mean it might not be as um called the the forward press as much but I think you know, we here in, in England we spend so much more time looking at playing spin uh, and foot movement in particular. Um, you know, you, you then go over to India, there's camps that they go on, you send them over, the younger lads go over to, to work on their game in, in that environment. So they're getting a lot more exposure to it. It's definitely something that, you know, we talk about as a coach and try to um, expand on and, and, and get them thinking about. It. Um, so for us at Somerset here, we had, uh, Azar Ali's been, you know, one of our overseas players for a couple of years. And we spent time with him, you know, getting his method and his understanding of what it was about. And he, was, he wasn't quite as deliberate with the, the front foot pair press, but still had a movement forward, which the younger lads could see. So, you know, so you can see almost like, this is a technique from somebody who's done it for all their career. This is somebody who's um, almost devised that technique to go to that part of the world. And then you can pick apart and try and give them the, the advice that they want. And was Fletcher the best as a technical coach that you've known? For, for me, yeah. For me, it, it worked. It was brilliant. Um, it, we just connected, um, worked very closely together. He, you know, I responded to how he devised and, and worked upon and helped me in, in my own style, and um, that was pivotal for me. Um, I'm sure other people will think the same, and I'm sure other people will have their own people that they really enjoyed working with, and I think that's the, the beauty of being a coach. You're not going to connect with everybody, and... Um, hit it off and, and get it right but um, when you do and you have a, a good impact with someone you can make a make a big difference.
2: In that second test um, England squeezed home by by just three wickets Darren Goff took eight in the match and Nasser Hussein gets a hundred. Just in your piece that there were there were some concerns about Hussain's form going into that test just how bad was it going into that second test?
0: Yeah I mean primarily those concerns seem to be his own. it's He passed 50 once in 19 innings before that Sri Lanka tour, averaging 15 in that time. So fairly desperate statistics. But as a captain, he was doing some brilliant things. The most impressive captain England had since Mike Brewley. And and it sounded like the players were very much behind him. But but Nassau has, was having a kind of crisis of confidence. Then he got one and three at Gaul. Marili got him out twice. And then he writes in his autobiography and Mike Atherton confirms this in his own book that Came very close to jacking in the captaincy at this point, despite England doing so well. Um, after a chat with Athertony, uh, who insisted to NASA that he still did have the support of the players, NASA went off to the hotel bar on his own in the early hours, had a rum and coke and a cigarette, and decided he'd continue because he thought the team were better with him than without him. Um, Marcus, I wondered how much of this were the players aware of at the time. Was it obvious that, that NASA was struggling?
3: Um, I think we were aware that you know it wasn't an easy time for him because it you know I think he missed the last warm-up game before the for the test match I think in so last warm-up game would have been Colombo I think um, I think we understood that you know that it was tough and you know you could tell the results speak for themselves you you see when they um, you know when they get runs when they don't but I think we all still wanted him there as a captain and as a leader because he gave us something which was quite um, unique he was quite Tough uh, and good for the team at that time in terms of delivering on what they needed, um, but I think you always knew with Nas that it was like you only have a one-minute away because he's, he's that sort of tough character that will dig in and scrap hard and get him that score that he needed to get, um, which came um, you know obviously came in the the second test in uh, in candy, but um, it was a real good hundred, real scrappy hundred. I think he was LBW about three times. Um, DRS would have made a huge difference in that game, I know for sure. But um, nonetheless, it was a, yeah, a brilliant time to see Skipper get back into the runs.
0: Well, Mark, we've got to talk about the umpiring in, in this series because some of it was... Uh, Interesting. Mean, yeah, beggar belief, really. I mean, you couldn't see a better advert for DRS than certainly the first two matches of, of that series. It seemed like England were on the kind of receiving end in the first test, but actually in the second test... Um, got a bit fortunate, as you say. NASA was out a couple of times. Giant Saria was out for a golden duck to a clear bump ball. Did it? Bump ball. Yeah. What, what did what did the players make of this? It, it was kind of looked like it was bordering on fast at times. Watching the highlights back, very interesting, wasn't it? I think um, we all appreciated that some of the decisions weren't
3: weren't correct, um, but it went across that like that whole series. I do think um, umpiring in that part of the world is probably the hardest place to do it because. That pads are so tricky to, to see um, and to get right. Um, you know, there's movement, there's ball spin. I think the game's in a better place for DRS. Um, I don't think we'd ever want to go back to um, series where it's like that, where there were so many mistakes or um, decisions that, that came across because they impact the game, don't they? They, they, they change the game. If, you, if you're on the wrong side of those and three decisions go against you over the course of five days, that makes a massive difference
0: the Alex Stewart one, which I think is the one that sticks out most. it was a kind of uh, a long hop which pitched about <laughs> three feet outside leg stump and he was giving out lBW yeah
3: yeah I know I remember the one it was um, very that, that was in um, that was in can uh, in Gaul wasn't it I think yes, from soria uh, bowling over the wicket yeah um, yeah there was there was a few others, and obviously that that bump ball catch it was a great catch mind, but um, obviously we don't, we don't really want to be getting that back to that point.
2: Well, there were bad decisions, you say, in both ways, but in that first test, on that second test, and I guess the final test as well, Darren Goff was absolutely brilliant for England um, in, that, in that series. What was it about Goff that, that made him so good in that period of his career?
3: I think it's, it suited his style of bowling a bit more. Um, you know, Andy Caddick was there also, and it was different because Andy Caddick comes from a different height and, you know, a different trajectory. Um, where Goffey, because he's quite skiddy and reverse swing, had a good slower ball. He was able to adapt it. His style of bowling, I think, you always see in that part of the world that the guys who are, have the ability to reverse it or are good at reverse swingers are—they uh, tend to have the impact in that, you know, in that sort of style. So, you know, he was good at adapting to situations, and uh, you know, in his ability to, you know, in that in that heat, and his fitness was obviously second to none around that sort of time.
0: I want to talk about the the atmosphere in the series as well. I think Mike Aston's described it as the most bad-tempered series he played in. I spoke to Ashley Charles about it. He said when he went out to bat to end up winning the game at Candy, he said it was about as tense as he could remember in a in a Test match. Was it was it a nasty atmosphere? And then did the umpiring play a part in that? Yeah, I've probably
3: aggressive atmosphere. I think you know, again, it was before the sort of time before a bit more restrictions have come into the game on. You know, in terms of sledging and um, confrontation, um, there's a lot more permutations in place now for that style of stuff, and and I think that was just the way the game was slightly back in that point. You know, it was it was fought it was fought hard because maybe the decisions did have a a, a bit of a difference in that and made it a bit more bad blood between the teams, but. Um, you know two competitive sides wanting to win and you know what you know sometimes that it comes to that point when you're under pressure and you and you get in that way that we gave as much as they did they were very competitive and we also did as well so I'm sure there are moments when we probably look back on it and think well that's probably not the right way to play in the game but you know maybe cricket was slightly different at that point.
2: And then in that final test um, the the spinners Goff and Caddick combined to strict Sri Lanka to just 241 then Thorpe has one of the one of the games of his career. He, he scored 113 not out, out of a total of 249. For England, rolled to ranker out for just 81. England then chased 74 with four kids in hand. Thorpe finishing on 32 not out. The second high score for England was, was just 13. That's obviously an extraordinary individual performance from Thorpe. Um, mm-hmm. You alluded to, to how well you and him did in that series, but what was it about Thorpe that um, was so good, do you think, in that series?
3: Yeah, I reckon his ability, you know, he was so good at sort of manipulating spinners. Um You know, he had the odd big shot when he wanted to run down wicket and whack one straight, or if he wanted to hit a big slog sweep, he could do, but you know, his ability to sort of pick up lengths, manipulate the, the spin into different areas was his real skill. Um, You know, and also batting in that heat, you know, you, you know, take some, I remember talking to him afterwards and how tired he was from, you know, the mental drain of, of, uh, of an intense test match. But um he just had that ability. You know, that's what why he, where he is right now. You know, just doing what he does with the England team, because his ability to to bat and to switch on when it really needed is um, one of his biggest skills that he, that he had really. So, um, but uh, you know, if you wanted somebody to bat for your life, it, it would be probably Graham Thorpe.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that that solo effort. They scored 145 unbeaten runs in that match. No other England batsman managed more than 34 across both innings. It's an extraordinary achievement. I mean, you could see from the footage just how exhausted he was. By the end of that second innings, because England yeah. got Sri Lanka out so quickly, he'd barely had a chance to to pause between those two innings, yeah. and we talked about the the dehydration and the fatigue.
3: Yeah, I remember the, you know, when we, what was it? What did we have to chase seventy odd for the for the to win the game? And it was so nerve wracking. You know, we were. I think we all appreciated how hard it was winning in that part of the world. Uh, we knew the stats of how long it was before. You know, we we previously done that. Um, and you think, well, Muralith on in the side, no one comes in Sri Lanka and wins nowadays. So, you know, we are in that position. It was so tricky and so nerve-wracking watching the boys knock it off because it was spinning and they had two or three different spinners. And um, it, was, it was very hard work, but uh, great great reward at the end of it.
0: Mm. You'd obviously had that, that, that famous win in Karachi just a couple of months earlier. But mm. NASA said afterwards that that win in Sri Lanka to come back from 1-0 down against that side um, yeah. surpassed that achievement comfortably is is that how it felt at the time yeah i reckon it would have been yeah because they're so tough and you know you're looking
3: at the quality of spin they had you know Merlitt and you know how well he was performing at that time and just you know taking wickets left right and center um everything was set up for them to win probably 3-0 um and that's what had happened in many other series that we played and suddenly we'd gone there and competed um against them um in our own fashion doing what we did um you know, both series were brilliant, but I think because of the caliber of you know of and in their side, that's what made it so special.
2: In that, in that quite short period of time on that, and of course, this is the start of your test career. Um England had a few quite impressive wins. There was a, the West Indies win in the, the summer before the Pakistan win, and then that Sri Lanka win. Did you guys feel that you were you were on the on the on the way to to creating something special as a team under Hussein and Fletcher?
3: Um. Not as much as when it, when it sort of progressed from that point when, when Vaughan took over the captaincy and we were then heading towards 05. I think what we did have was um, what Nasser and Duncan both brought to the team was a better um, work ethic for central contracts and um, into a, a time when actually the pivotal point of playing cricket was for England. Um, things were changing so you you, you had a sense of we were improving and our grounding and our attitude towards playing towards it was from what I'm being told was was better uh, and more professional at that time Um, but it had time to grow and it wasn't till you know three or four down three or four years down the line I think we've really noticed the benefit
2: of that. Moving forward to the present day England now have six tests back to back in Asia two in Sri Lanka then four in India how well Um, set up, do you think, England are for
3: that six-test burst? Um, Well, hopefully very well. Um, I think they've been planning for it for a a couple of years and understanding that, you know, they're going to get back into that part of the world um, and there'll be quite a lot of cricket. I think you'll be seeing Pakistan will be on the horizon fairly soon as well, wouldn't it? Um, But I think because of the time that England players have spent more in the subcontinent, they will be better players, better suited uh, for playing in, in that part of the world. Still a challenge, you know, because it's a challenge when India come to us um, because the conditions are different. Um, it's up to, you know, luckily they've got the two tests in Sri Lanka to prepare uh, and have almost three or four weeks of preparation time before they get to India where the real series is going to take place,
2: isn't it? Well, Marcus, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks no problem. Time. No worries. All the best. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Phil. Thanks for listening, folks. This has been the and Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you enjoy the show, and, it, and it, apparently quite a lot of you are, our last episode was our most listened to ever. Uh, so do tell your friends. We'll be back next week uh, as we look forward to the start of the England Sri Lanka series. See you next time.
0: Network.